Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning. Get to our book, Philippians, and uh, what a joy it is to be able to be together and dig back in after such a, a blessed uh, resurrection weekend last week to be having our hearts meditating on the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning, as DT had mentioned, we are in and have been traveling through and journeying through the book of Philippians, really trying and begging the Lord, asking uh, for him to help us be the kind of worthy servants that is pleasing in God's sight. I hope that's part of what has driven you over this past week, that somehow uh, you, it hasn't escaped your gaze as you've lived your life and have gone about your day-to-day -day business because it, it is in those moments of the day-to-day -day that we often lose sight of it. Uh, if you'd have to admit, you'd have to admit at least, it's a lot easier when we're all here in a sense focusing our attention in worship, we're focusing attention in learning God's word. Uh, this is the easy atmosphere to allow your mind to soak in the truths of God. Unless you're sleeping, which I hope that's not the case. That's also difficult. But in the reality is, it's when you get out there, it's that you're supposed to take this and live out your life in a way that is worthy of the gospel. And no doubt, as we have come to this particular, particular theme verse in the book of uh, Philippians, we are going to go over uh, what does that look like? And I think we really have to ask ourselves the question, Paul intends for the Philippian believers to grapple in their mind, to reflect on the truth when they go about their day-to-day -day business. And it's this, what makes a life worth living? And I hope you ask yourself, what makes your life worth living? I hope the answers to that question, by the way, are not, uh, are not the trivial, earthly kinds of things. The things that you get excited about, the things that uh, that God has given for blessings, but now are things that you end up living and finding purpose in. That's often where I find people in the Christian community struggle more, uh, more than other areas. It's to take the things that God intended to be blessings and to elevate them to a degree that now they become my God. Marriage is great, but if I worship marriage, it's bad. I can love peace, but if I seek after peace outside in earthly measures, it's bad. I can create all kinds of ways in which my heart longs to have worth and satisfaction in something other than God himself and in his son Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is trying to express to the Philippian believers. Maintain this kind of focus. Now, let me remind ourselves, at least up to this point, because we're finishing chapter 1, and remind ourselves where Paul has been at this point. We, we just finished the last section of Philippians, uh, understanding that Paul gave this central perspective to the Philippians. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Simply stated, in a nutshell, he, he tries to hone in on this reality so that we would walk away saying, Am I living for Christ alone? And my purposes are bound up in this person of Christ. Now, as we 
turn to our text this morning in Philippians chapter 1, uh, I want to give you a main idea. Now, I, I just recognized just a second before I came up here, I would normally put this on the screen so that you don't miss it. So let me say it a couple of times so that you're able to write it down if you're taking notes. And here's the main idea that you're going to find flowing through the section of, of verses 27 to 30, and it's this. A life impacted by the gospel lives in a manner worthy of that gospel and it produces a unity in community filled with fearlessness. A life impacted by the gospel lives in a manner worthy of that gospel and produces a unity in the community filled absolutely with fearlessness. As you walk out and live your day-to-day life, this is, the, this is the central idea of the section that, we, that Paul is trying to drive home and to give us what I think what we see in this passage are really some four foundational truths of, the, of a gospel-centered community that lives in a fearless way, it's filled with unity, who has purpose and drive to do the things that God wants them to do. And here's number one. Here's foundation Principle number one is the goal within the gospel. What is that goal? The goal is exactly what Paul has already stated. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Can I just, can I just, I know it seems like such a simple thing. Like we could say it and all of us could say it together. But do you realize that the reality is, is that there are many of us at different moments in time, in our week, in our day-to-day lives, that we are not living for Christ, that our minds are not fixated on what would be pleasing to Christ, that somehow some minor detail escapes us and all of a sudden we think we have a right to respond in certain ways, to say certain things, to be certain ways, to go certain places, to view certain things. If you're tempted and all of a sudden you're thinking, what am I doing? You better be careful. Because this reality, to live as, for Christ and to have your life say, to die is gain, is no small matter for the Christian. Easy to say, difficult to accomplish in such a way that your conscience would be completely clear before the Lord. But don't forget the goal. The goal within the gospel community is to live for him. It's not about you. Now, if you haven't figured this out in your marriage, and you've been living that this is for you, this is all about your goals, your agenda, and I know it because, I, like I said, uh, doing years of marital counseling, uh, you just see it in the face of those people like, they will complete me. And like, it's two days or a week later, and like, you are not completing me at all. They're frustrated. They're thinking, I can't believe I signed up for this. And then they're thinking, I thought I was selfless, and I realized I was selfish. And so to correct it, like, I thought, well, then I'll have kids. Maybe I'll figure that out. That made it worse. It made it worse because it exposed me. See, the gospel is intended to expose you. And the the apostle 
Paul is desirous for exposing our hearts so that when we're not living for Jesus Christ alone, that something goes on in our minds, in our affections, to say, this isn't right. It's like all of a sudden that red flag pops up in our mind like, don't do that, don't say that, don't treat them that way, love the Lord this way instead. And sometimes we don't always want to listen to the very truth that God has implanted on our heart and the truths that are revealed in his scripture. And we live apart from this goal. I don't want to labor here long because we'll come back again and again to this in the book of Philippians. But simply enough to say, Christian, is that your focus? Has it been your focus just last week? It's so often difficult for people, honestly, to say, is your life characterized by Christ? They'll usually be like, I think so. Okay? And that's good. But what about last week? Can you remember at least back to then? What about last month? You have to begin to ask yourself questions and meditate and reflect and say, what am I characterized by? Because that's what Paul is saying. He wants your life characterized by some greater purpose than your own. It has to be bigger than just some degree. It has to be bigger than just some job. It has to be bigger than just getting married. It has to be bigger than playing on some team and some athletic uh, drive. It has to be bigger than just whether you have kids or not. It has to be bigger than that. And the bigger of this portion of Scripture is it's Christ. And without him, life is purposeless. It's meaningless. It's hopeless unless he comes in and he rescues the soul of those who are destined for hell and he repurposes them and replans their life and he says, you know what? I have something in store for you that you are going to find so satisfying. Isn't that our prayer? I mean, my prayer as a pastor for you is that you will see Jesus Christ so clearly that you will not be satisfied by anything else here on earth. Because once that satisfaction is fixed on Jesus Christ, who reigns on the, on the right hand of the throne of God, here's what happens. Your gaze turns from all the problems in the world. It is lifted above the challenges and suffering and circumstances. And you begin to see a sovereign, majestic, providential, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent God. That you say, I just love him so much. I don't know why I would want to live for anything else. And you see other Christians, and they might be living for something else. And you've got to go rescue them and help them reshift their focus and gaze back on the person of Jesus Christ so that to live is Christ and to die is only this incredible gain that it gets us into the presence of Jesus Christ who will then welcome us to his, to his home, to the home that he has prepared for us. Well, second foundation that we find here is this, that the manner, it is all about the manner of living within a gospel community. It's not just about the goal of the community. These are foundational elements. You have to live with a goal, but then you also have to have a manner that accompanies that goal. Now, notice this in the text in Philippians 1, 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now, let me just 
gather your thoughts for a moment on the entirety of verses 27 to 30. One of the challenging components of this in a Greek text is this is all one big sentence. So you try to diagram this, he's like, he just keeps going, he's got a major point and he wants to keep saying this, but here's where he starts. Now don't pass by this, only. This is the way for the Apostle Paul to simply all of a sudden stop and say to the Philippian believers, in, in amidst all the things that are going on, amidst all the struggles, persecution, false teaching, living in the midst of a Roman colony, he's saying, there is just one thing I must say to you. That is the only of this text, and that is the strength of it. He's almost saying, stop for a moment. I've got one thing that is really, really important for you. Let your manner of life be worthy of this gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, over and over again, if you study the, the epistles, you will notice that Paul often used a similar phrase to live worthy of the gospel, to live a, a worthy life. You see that in, in Thessalonians. You see, see that in Colossians. And here, it's quite fascinating because he deliberately draws our attention by the word that he uses, which is a different word than, than, what, he normally, than what is normally translated as live worthy of the gospel, and he wants to remind them, and this is so fitting in the book of Philippians. Now let's just pause for a moment and remember a little bit of history. Because history in the context of this passage matters so much. Because it shapes the words Paul chooses to use. You remember the Philippian church? Started by, with Lydia by the side of the... Uh, of, of this, of this of stream, and they are there, and the Philippian jailer, and the context of the Philippian church now living in what was stated as a Roman colony in the book of Acts. Now, when you were a Roman colony, this was a so incredibly uh, important status for you. In fact, all these little Roman colony outposts were almost as if they were figured like small little groupings of, of, a, of a picture of Rome. If you went to these places and you saw these towns, and I've had the privilege at different times to see some of these places that were, were established as Roman colonies, and it, it bore with it the majestic reality of the pillars, all of the things and all of the accoutrements. When you walked into that city, they would go, whoa. It was designed in a way to be breathtaking. You walk down the main street of the Cardia of a, Roman, of, of, of a Roman city, of a Roman colony, and there were pillars and shops, and it, it led to the, the place of their, uh, of their worship, and it was designed in a way to say, wow, this, if we could go to Rome, even if I've never been to Rome, it's like I have a little bit of Rome right here. Now, in the midst of that, the Philippian believers living in a Roman colony who were so fixated, many of, by the way, even the Philippian jailer, likely a Gentile, and other Gentiles that had been saved that were part of a, being a Roman citizen, they would look at this and say, I am part of the, of the, of the city of Philippi. I am, a cit I am a citizen of this city. So Paul plays off this reality of citizenship of a Roman colony, which was so big in the first century, that you lived in a way that would not reflect badly on the Roman city-state that you had. And so he now fixes this word, to live as a worthy 
individual for the gospel of Christ, and it is an extension because the very root word of, of this verb, let your manner, which is an imperative, which is a command for us, is the root word for city, for city-state. And he builds off this imagery, and he gives us something else. So maybe the, sense, the, the real sense of this here is live like a different kind of citizen even though you are part of, of, have a citizenship in a different uh, earthly community, but live as if you are part of a heavenly community. Now, Paul does this over and over. He says this again in the book of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 20, where he says just that, our citizenship is in heaven. But in this particular text, he doesn't choose to, to, the translators choose not to use the word citizenship, which is the sense of the reality of that. Live as a citizen who is worthy of reflecting the very majesty of the citizenship you have where? Not in Philippi, here on earth, or in heaven. That's what he's saying. Now, I love this picture because it's all throughout the New Testament. Paul says it in different ways at different times. In Romans chapter 12, he says, it, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and you're living in the world, but you're not of the world. That's exactly the commendation he's giving to the Philippian individuals. I know you're living in a Roman colony, and you prize this idea of Roman citizenship, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to prize your citizenship, belonging to a gospel community that resides in heaven alone. And you are now an outpost of that very gospel working as a community so that when they see you, Church of Philippi, they see a miniature perspective of the city of God and the people of God. Let me just ask us collectively to think about this. Are we as the chapel taking seriously our collective response to being an outpost of our citizenship in heaven? Oh, chapel member, every one of you, from young to old, are you, are you sharing about the citizenship that you have in heaven? Do you, do you know people who do not have... have have, have understood the gospel and need to repent of their sin and they don't know Jesus Christ? Are you sharing it with them? Are you finding out ways to get into gospel conversations so that you can share this one most beautiful truth with them? So that when you bring them here, they all of a sudden come to a collective group of people and say, there's more of them? I thought I was the only one. See, the beauty of the body of Christ is that you go do it sometimes by yourself, unnoticed by others, but then you come here and you get refueled by the gospel and you go out and you do it again. And week after week, you live for Christ, helping other people realize and by your manner of living is a testimony of your citizenship. It speaks of dedication, which forces us to ask ourselves the question, if God were to, to look at the amount of, of service and dedication I have for him, how would he describe it? Not how you would describe it. Oh, I'm good with just this little bit of this and that. I feel like I'm doing well. 
Ask yourself if God had to tell you how your citizenship and your living in a manner are worthy of him, what would he say? And as you have those things, doesn't, doesn't it happen when somebody asks you this? It always happened to me when I was listening to sermons, so I imagine it's probably happening for you. If all of a sudden you could pick an area, you, you probably think, if I said, what is one area of your life where you are not living as worthy to the gospel of Jesus Christ as you should be? Does something pop in your mind? Just for you, between you and God, does, I bet something pops in there, doesn't it? Now the question becomes, what are you going to do with that? Often the moments of the Spirit's indwelling and Spirit's conviction draws to our mind specific ways where we don't live in a worthy kind of way. And we kind of go, ooh, thank you, Lord, forgive me for that. And then we kind of go out and we just go do it again. Grab hold of this moment. Grab hold of that, that specific thing that you're wrestling with that seems to be ongoing in your life and say, what am I going to do about this so that when God sees how I respond in my life that he would say, that's how you live a worthy life according to the gospel. Let me speak to the teens for a moment. If you're here as a teen, often sometimes you think, oh man, I made it through another service. My dad's here. He knows that. He, he pastored me for a number of years. And I think I sat there probably times, and I think a lot of times my father was probably saying, what a knucklehead. Now, he did that on more than one occasion, by the way. I guarantee you there were moments where I sat under preaching and teaching of a variety of different people, including my father, and had things come to mind and totally disregarded them Monday through Saturday. And then tried to have some semblance of that, okay, I'm doing this thing. Oh, teenager, young person, can I tell you, what's going to make a worthy individual before Jesus Christ is that you start now. You don't get to be a worthy citizen as an older individual, not by just saying, I'm not going to start now. What does that worthy citizenship look like for you as a teenager when you go into whatever environment of school you happen to have and that doesn't matter, public school, home school, Christian school, because I happen to know, having have kids in all three of various circumstances, there are unbelievers in all three. Which means the way you live your life, whether it's to your siblings around you, whether, to, whether it's to the homeschool co-op and people that you have, or whether it's to the public school environment, there is something so important for you, young person, to recognize it is so worthy of, 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 of your commitment to God to begin to share this. Don't just try to fit in. Scores of young people are doing that. Scores of them. And you know what, what happens is they go to college and all of a sudden they want to fit in there. And that becomes the life story until something grips their soul. Either they come to Christ or they yield to Christ. And they live for a different purpose outside of themselves. Can I just encourage you, young person, if you classify yourself as young, you can be old and classify yourself as young too. Live in a way that is worthy of the gospel that redeemed your soul. This was no small work by the Father to send his Son to, to ransom us from a penalty and eternity in hell. It is a life that is forever lived with thanksgiving so that as this worthy life is lived, they see one thing. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ has power beyond all measure of anything that you could ever find here on earth. When he can take lives that were headed in the totally wrong direction, he can redeem them from, from the very pit of hell who are, who are going to spend their life there, and he can reshape them and say, look at this trophy. Who can do that but God? In the midst of this body of Christ, even the short period of time that I've been able to be involved with so many different people here, which has been such a tremendous experience, I've seen and witnessed and heard of the trophies that God is creating here. People that I, 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 I go away from conversations and coffees and dinners and say, who but God can do that kind of stuff? He is doing it all around you. If you fail to see it, you will miss out on allowing that worthy life to be shaped by thanksgiving. God, please do this for me. Please do this for other people. I want them to see you. That's a life that is lived worthy of the gospel, which means it has to be a life worthy of the gospel, and it has to be filled with integrity. We can't be Christians on Sunday and not Christians Monday through Saturday. We have to be Christians that are honest, that are truthful in the world that we live in. There should be something about it differently when somebody finds out or an employer finds out, oh, they're a Christian. Okay, we know they're going to be a good worker. They know they're going to be honest. We know there's a whole bunch of a different accoutrements that just happen to come along with that phrase. And I think we can show the world, we're, we're told to demonstrate before the eyes of the world a life that is worthy before him. The manner in which you live is so, incredi so incredibly important. And why is it important? Because Paul simply says, he says that when, so that if, if I am there with you, whether I, am, whether I see you or I'm, I'm absent from you, that I might hear of you. Can I just tell you one of the most glorious things as elders? I, I just love this. As we sit at elders meetings at different times, we pray for you because we just love you so much. And to be able to say, did you hear of so-and-so's faith who is standing firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ? It astounds us. And Paul said, I want you to do this. So that by chance, whether I'm away from you or I'm, or I'm absent or I'm there, that I just might hear of what your life is like and say, praise be to God. Not praise be to Paul. <laughs> praise be to God that only a God could save people to do and respond to life in circumstances like this. I can resonate with Paul's pastoral heart to say, I just want to hear of people coming to Christ because of, your, because of your desire to advance the kingdom of God, from your desire uh, that your children come to know Christ because they watched mom and dad living a life that was so extremely satisfied with Jesus Christ that they saw you as a mom and dad or as a friend or as a brother and sister or as a church member or as a worker in the community and they said, there is something different about that man, that woman, that teen, that young person. Oh, I long to hear more stories than what I've heard. And, I, and I'll tell you what, he can do it. 
through you if you commit yourself to live that kind of life filled with a gaze that is fixed on the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can hear. It's not just so the point that we can hear, it's so that we can hear and rejoice. I mean, how depressing would it be if all of a sudden you came to church on any given Sunday and the only thing you ever heard from somebody is that it's not going well. But I don't hear that here. Yes, I hear there's challenges for all of us at different moments, but God is sustaining you. God is doing a work in you and it's so glorious for us as elders to be able to look out and say, God is in the midst of this place. God has his hand upon this place. God has his people in this place to do a work that they couldn't do apart from him. And we get a chance to be part of that together, you guys. He says this to them as he continues uh, to go uh, to think about these areas. He says, it's not only about the goal that you have to live for the gospel. It's not just about the manner that you live with. But thirdly, it's also about the unity within a gospel community. Now he starts to use this phrase. Now, whether I'm absent, or whether I'm there or I'm absent from you, I want to hear this, that you're standing firm. Now he's going to employ a few different words with a few different imageries. And let me try to unpack them for you as we, as we think about these thoughts together. He says, I really want you to stand firm. Now he pulls out this battleground terminology so that it forces the Christian, as they're living a worthy life, to think, are you standing firm? Now, in, in Greek life and in Roman life, if you understood anything about uh, Roman military or Greek military where all these things uh, clashed on the battlefield, very different than, than sending drones and sending ships and, uh, at various times, they had hand-to-hand -hand combat, and this is the kind of imagery that he would say uh, that he's employing now. And it's the imagery of a group of people who would stand side by side, who would then, a group of Roman soldiers, a Roman legion, which adopted a various fighting style from the Greek army called the phalanx, which was so successful during Alexander the Great's uh, conquest that they defeated army after army, and they modified it so it could be mobile. But here's what they would do when they would stand firm. You would have typically a row of eight different, eight deep soldiers, eight different Roman legionnaires all standing right behind each other. And because most of them were going to hold their shield in their right side, they'd throw up their shield and all of them would throw up their shield. The guy behind them would throw his shield over the top and the guy behind him, as the, as the horses would come in, as people would come in, they would all push on each other so that when it finally hit the front line, they would hit a wall of soldiers. That is the imagery. Christians, bind yourself together Throw up your shields of faith. Protect one another from above and, and beside each other. Go to war with each other as you fight the fights of faith together. If you haven't noticed, the world isn't so excited to hear about the gospel. They're not, they're not dying to put that on uh, any other kind of news station, like, let's bring in a Christian and let's see their perspective on it. Like, you don't hear that in any kind of news venue. Because they are not interested in a citizenship that is in heaven. They are interested in revamping the earth. And the earth is going to be destroyed, by the way. 
all of the pleasures that you experience here on earth, as enjoyable as they are, as a blessing as they are, they're all going away. And what will remain is God and his people who have been redeemed and transferred to, the citizen, to be a citizenship of the kingdom of God living in the city of light where Jesus is the light. I would say to you, if you do that, you cannot do that without unity. You cannot have a standing firm without a, a group of believers saying, I will support you. I mean, could you imagine what that would have been like eight deep and all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden arrows are coming your way and some guy behind you decides to not throw up his shield over the top of you? Like, thanks a lot. The Christian community has to be one who protects each other on every measure. That means, by the way, you can't do that without being intricately involved in one another's lives. And you have to like it. You don't have to just say, ugh, I don't want them to know me. Instead, you say, I want them to know me. I want to enjoy them because the camaraderie that happens when we stand firm together is that we protect one another from the wiles of the devil, from the flesh that resides in our own heart, from the ways we tend to even think earthly thoughts still as he continues to sanctify and redeem you. That is a community effort. Paul says, stand firm, Christians, Philippians, and then by extension to the chapel. You stand in firm. Figuratively speaking, that same phrase could be put another way. Hold fast to your belief. Hold fast to the convictions that you have. You know, it's not as if the Bible isn't replete with, with circumstances of people who you thought were Christians and then later on you heard of them and they abandoned the faith altogether, which reveals they were never likely a Christian to begin with. But many people hide and, and because for whatever reason they say they hold fast and yet they don't hold fast. It is only when we are intricately involved in unif unification in the body of Christ that we help root out sin in the community and help each other as we deal with it in each other's lives. Which means you can't look down on each other. If you, someone shares something with you and all of a sudden you're like, oh my word, I can't believe you are like that. Don't be so shocked the fact that your brothers and sisters are still fighting the fight of faith. They are still being sanctified. I mean, if the case was we had more holier saints than other saints, we'd just create a section and then we'd all just look at them. What are you doing that I have to do? No, this is a faith that must be passed on by the rubbing of up against each other to say, you're doing something that's really good that I seem to struggle to do. You're so compassionate. You're so gracious. You're so kind. And I often think, of my, think to myself, as a pastor, there are so many people with such good talents and gifts that God has given to, and I watch it being exercised amongst the community, and I think to myself, I want to get to know that person because I think they might have something that God might use in their life to teach me about a lack of something in my life. 
Choose someone to be friends with who's doing something that you struggle trying to do and say, how do you do that? What mindset does that take? What affections does, that, does, it, does it take to be able to have that? And I want to know this. Can I shadow you? I mean, we're going to have people like, walk, what are you doing? Stop following me. You want to live a life that you can say as the Apostle Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. And that is the goal of worthy citizens who live in unity with each other. They are striving side by side. This idea of striving is now an athletic term. Not only stand firm as a military action, but strive together side by side. And what, what he's trying to get the image of is the athletic games of, of, of the day. And he's trying to say, work as a team. I love the fact that he says side by side because he doesn't say, do it yourself. You realize this, we cannot do it alone. I can't do it alone. No one elder can do it alone. No one congregant can do it alone. We must do it together. If we stand firm, if we strive with one spirit, with one mind, that's the idea of unity. One spirit, notice it's not capitalized. I understand that some authors will argue and uh, that maybe this should, the spirit should be capitalized, but I will at least make the argument, not extensively, but simply to say out of the result of my study, to say the spirit here is attitude. With one kind of Christian community that has the same attitude with the same thinking. And the thinking helps generate the attitude, and the attitude fuels more of the right thinking. They are on the same page. We are in one, we are in lockstep with each other. We are fighting in battle formation, standing firm with one spirit, one attitude, one mind of Christ. And I wonder, as you just see the foreshadowing, like, where's he going with this one mind thing? I mean, doesn't it just make you want to jump ahead to Philippians 2? Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Oh, we're getting there. I got to stop that. We're going to get there. But it's striving together side by side so that we can then enjoy watching God do the work that no one person could do alone so that it forces everybody in the body to say, God did that. God did that. <laughs> and no one gets any glory that they don't deserve. And that we are fixated on saying God's glory is the most sufficient and satisfying moment in our life that we must work for. Well, what destroys unity? What keeps us from standing firm and striving side by side with one spirit and one mind? Maybe perhaps it's some of these kinds of things. Bitterness. I mean, maybe you're here and you think, there's somebody that you know that you are just downright bitter at. They said something, maybe the truth in an unloving way, or they went about correcting you when you weren't ready, they weren't patient with you, and now you look at that person, when you come in in the, in the, in the sanctuary, you walk in the door and you think, oh, there they are. It destroys unity. What about grumbling? I mean, not that the body of Christ doesn't grumble, I know. But let's just say it happens in the body. 
It's happening all the time. Don't think that as a pastor over the years, over the last 20 years, that I haven't seen my fair share of both verbal and written grumbling. I mean, grumbling, what about laziness? I mean, what if you're part of a body but you don't want to do anything? You've got gifts and talents that God wants you to exercise in the community for the benefit of others, for the greatness of God, and you go, yeah, I'll pass. See, we can't have a community like that. When you have gifts and talents, there's a reason God gave them for you, and it's to use for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't be lazy. If there's a need in the body, if there's a need for teachers and, and nursery workers and helpers on a variety of different levels, try to be there to exercise the very things that God has given to you. I've so often found Christian people say, um, I just don't think I'm good at that. So they make a, a corrective self-assessment. That's not for me. How do you know if you'll like something if you don't even try it? I mean, I tell my kids with food that all the time. I say the same thing to you as, as, as one of your elders. How do you know you won't like it until you've tried it? And all of a sudden you realize that God has given you far more gifts than you could ever imagine. And maybe you'll be one of the best Sunday school teachers. Uh, maybe you'll be the best worker in a certain ministry that's going on. But you have to be willing. You can't be lazy. We have to create not only an attitude and a spirit, but an army of people who are driven by lives that are worth, that, that are focusing on the worth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People who aren't grumbling and complaining and lazy and talking behind each other's back and all of a sudden praising God, as James says, with one side of my mouth and then cursing men with the other. Oh, I love so-and-so. I mean, I, I was in the South for four years, so it's kind of like, you, you get this phrase, like, I don't know, maybe some of you have lived there, it was like, bless their heart. Like, I found that that was a license to say whatever you want to say after that. Oh, bless them. Now let me tell you what I really want to tell you. Don't be those kind of people where you walk away from the body and say, oh, you're so great. Oh, my goodness. Did you see what they were wearing? Don't do that. Don't pick each other apart. Don't be judgmental in areas where it's not necessary. Come alongside one another with kindness and love and encouragement. Oh, I, I have been blessed by this community in such a short period of time in ways that has been beyond measure, blessed by the elders, blessed by, by, by all kinds of people, blessed by the other uh, pastors that I work with uh, that are on staff on a weekly basis. They're, they're helping this body behind the scenes. Please don't all of a sudden take for granted all the people, all the ministry workers, all the nursery workers, the children's workers that are right now discipling the next generation and say, thank you for doing what you're doing. Is there any way I can help? We have to have that foundation, the goal that is right, the manner of living that is right, the unity within this community, and lastly, it produces a fearless faith of a gospel-centered community. You notice this. He said, as you're, he said, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, uh, but of your salvation, and that from God. 
For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The idea and the word that is used and translated frightened is the word to not be intimidated. Don't be intimidated by people in the world who will live with a different agenda. Don't be afraid by people who might mock you. People who will say, why did you bring your Bible to school? Well, because I had a break and I thought if anything I could do on that break is to be able to read some of God's word and it, boom, it opens a doorway to the gospel-centered conversation. Sometimes young people are even intimidated to bring their Bible to school in a culture like ours because they're afraid, what will somebody say? I can only imagine at various components on the college campus where there is a fear. Oh, what are the hell are they going to respond when I share the gospel with them? And I'm going to tell them, they're a sinner. Like, sinner, that's so out of vogue. Who says that anymore? But I got to say it. Because redemption is only possible if they re- unless they recognize of their own sinful state. Christians, don't be intimidated by family, by people, by loved ones who still have yet to embrace the truth, th- being tempted to think, is it worth it? Is it worth it? It is worth it. The fearlessness ends up driving us to a life with even further desire to live and to please God. It acts as a sign to the world that we live in. It has a dual function when you live rightly. It's a sign to unbelievers, the Apostle Paul says, that they're going to destruction. There's a power beyond what they possess. How does that person get through hearing news about a loved one being diagnosed with cancer and they can still not falter in their faith. How do they do it? It causes them to remind themselves they have something I don't have. And for the believer, it reminds you that your perseverance has been anchored by the living God who is worthy of all the praise and honor that was, that was given to you by you accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a sign for you that in an assurance, I am a believer. Because believers respond this way, and that's exactly how I'm responding. And he finishes the whole section out by saying, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Christians, I wish I could tell you that we wouldn't suffer. Suffer in ways that sometimes hurt so deeply that would almost derail us. But Christians who suffer in a way that bring honor and glory to God, it is a sign for you that you are persevering in the faith, with the power of the indwelling spirit, that every time you don't lash out when you otherwise could, that there's something, some other agenda that's driving you, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder to you, to the community, and everybody around you, that when we suffer. Now, here's the reality. It's not if you suffer. It's when you suffer. Because we have, as Paul says, for the sake of Christ, We won't only believe, but we will suffer for his sake. And suffering comes in all shapes and sizes. 
than the world that we live in that's filled with total depravity. But these suffering moments are opportunities for us to display a life that is living, worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the same kind of conflict that even Paul had. There was a gospel resistance and there still remains a gospel resistance to the truth that will forever remain until Jesus makes all things new. So how long are we going to have to deal with this suffering? Until he comes. Don't get discouraged by that. Think about the opportunities that you have to display an attitude and a mindset to a, to a people who are dying and going to hell that challenges them to say, there's got to be something more than what I'm living for. And your life can be used by God as you live that life filled with the goal and the manner and the unity and the fearlessness to make God's name great. It is no small task. It is no worthless pursuit. It is something that together we can engage in, strengthen each other when we are weak, rejoice with each other when we see God do what only he can do, and that we would live a life worthy of the gospel. And I want you to take this image as you think about it, because this is his whole phrase of this section, worthy of the gospel. Are you living that way? If not, maybe you have to do some business before the Lord in repenting. Maybe you have to alter some things in your life. Maybe you have to get with another brother or sister. Maybe you have to come and, and get with one of the elders and say, can you just help me? That's what we're here to do, but we're here to do it together for the name and the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Let's do it together, side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Your kindness is immense. Your satisfaction in your Son is glorious. Your Spirit convicts us so deeply. Your truth brings us knowledge and an awareness that we would not find in ourselves. Lord, help us at the chapel, every individual, every family, every member, every person to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.